Good morning. It has been such a long time since I've been up here. Hi! <laughs> this is exciting for me to be back with you guys. It's been a minute. It's actually been two months since I got back from sabbatical, which was wonderful, and I'll talk more about that during this message. Uh, but the past 18 months have not been normal or easy or necessarily how everyone knows how to deal with ministry. And so being able to have those two months away were invaluable for me and my family, especially after having a baby, uh, our fifth child, and being able to spend time with Finley a lot over the past two months was amazing. So I'm back. I've learned a lot of things about myself in this time, but most importantly, I learned how my title, my position, and what I do do not have to define me because I'm not the sum total of my effort, but I am defined and identified by Christ's accomplishments through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And this is going to be a consistent theme throughout this message. It's going to be this idea that I am defined and identified by Christ. And to be honest, I would have said that prior to going on sabbatical, but now I actually know what that means. I've experienced it. And today we're going to begin a new series, one that I want to do for quite a while. It's a five-week walkthrough of one of the shortest letters in all of Scripture known as Philemon. The reason I wanted to do this series was because one of my goals as one of your pastors is to do the best I can to teach through the entirety of Scripture and to unpack and uncover the beauty of the full counsel of Scripture. And sometimes that means slowing way down like the sloth in that one movie that I can't remember the name of. Anyone? Zootopia, thank you. I'm glad you guys are paying attention. That's good. And not only looking at the words that were written in different books of the Bible, but the context, the themes, the choice of words, the author, the audience, the purpose of the letter, the happenings in culture at the time, the original language in which it was documented, and so much more and taking multiple weeks on a letter that consists of 25 verses will be an opportunity to do so, so let's go. I have a question for you. It's this question that I think is asked very often, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? This isn't a question that most of us voice as adults, but it may be a question that we all ask when we're a little less mature and possibly younger, or maybe we do ask it now. We just don't ask it out loud. Maybe we think about it internally. Think about the last time you were invited to a social opportunity. You may have inadvertently asked internally, what's in it for me? When you think about how to prioritize your time, it may be through the lens of what's in it for me. And as Christians, we've all heard the sermons, we've read the passages that we ought to care for others more than we care for ourselves, that our selfishness should be put to death because of Christ, which is true, but in reality, that's a slow process, isn't it? You guys can talk back. It takes a while to have our habits change to have our mind be renewed, to have our actions be transformed from who we once were to who we can be is a process that the Lord is doing in each of our lives as we pursue Him. And so, as we dive into this very, very, very short letter written by Paul to a fellow brother named Philemon regarding a bondservant, a slave, someone indebted to Philemon named Onesimus, we must be real in the fact that we tend to look through the lens in our flesh that simply asks, what's in it for me? And today and for the next many weeks, we will read through and study the simple letter and the ve that veils the reality that the transformative work of Christ in our lives by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit 
has benefits. Did you know that? That when you come to Christ, not only are you saved eternally, you have a relationship with God, but there are benefits because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides in you and things start to change in you. But don't think I went on a sabbatical and came back a prosperity preacher. These benefits are things that God uses to make much of him. And for those that, and often when we pursue those benefits specifically, we miss out on the purpose of what God really wants to do in us. But those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb understand that these benefits are things we celebrate because we know it's not us. We know it's Christ inside of us that's doing the work. So what we're going to look at over the next few weeks is what individually and corporately the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit does to become, to help us become less selfish and less self-centered and more selfless and more Christ-centered. So let's see. Philemon chapter, well, there's one, there's no chapters. It's just verses 1 through 25. So Philemon 1, that's going to be weird to say for a while. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Paul addresses himself not as an apostle, as was somewhat customary in many of the letters that he wrote to others, but as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. This letter is known to be written at the exact same time as the letter that we've studied known as Colossians. We went through the book of Colossians. We called that series, Why We Do What We Do. And look at how Paul addresses himself there. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, he says it this way, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And I make this distinction because it's very clear that Paul is writing to someone personally. And even though we will see in a moment that it's a church meeting in a home, Paul is dressing, addressing an individual in a relationship and doesn't need to point out his position or his rank, but his servanthood and his connection to the Lord who he is ultimately indebted to beyond all else. Paul also writes with Timothy by his side, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. He's pointing out that he too is a brother in the faith, a family member, a co-laborer with them in Christ. And Timothy, this young pastor of Ephesus, the protege of Paul that he writes two letters to in the New Testament, known as First and Second Timothy, is accompanying Paul, accompanying Paul while this letter is being written. Paul and Timothy's relationship is special. Even though Paul is an apostle and pretty significant mover and shaker when it comes to the gospel, his mentorship to the younger Timothy continues to grow through what we consider to be known as discipleship, to help Timothy grow as a disciple of his, but more importantly, a disciple of Jesus Christ. I've been away for two months. From my job, if you will, at COV, and what does that mean? What do I do as the lead pastor at Church of the Valley? Do I just work on Sundays like some people assume? <laughs> I wish. No. Sunday is the easiest day of the week for a pastor, I think, if you're doing it right. Here's why. Because Sunday service is the celebration of all that God did during the week and we hope that the week, not just for the pastor, but for everyone, is full of discipleship, full of worship, and full of service to God through people. And a big thing I got to do during my sabbatical was to have no scheduled meetings every day, and I did not have to sermon prep, which is always lingering as I would reflect on the ministry that I've been a part of here at COV for the past four years. Reflection can be good. It usually is for me, but I reflected much on the things that I've done wrong. 
And for me, that is some of the best ways I can gain knowledge and perspective, is thinking through maybe what I focused on or overemphasized or didn't emphasize enough over the past four years. One of the many things that I think I emphasized in the wrong way was attendance and community, especially Sunday mornings. Here's what we would say often. Your attendance does not save you, and that is absolutely true. It does not justify you. It does not make you righteous before God. If you came here today saying, I'm going to get a little bit of religion, stop it. You're going to get a lot of Jesus today. That's what you're going to get. See, your attendance does not save you, and that is true, but God, it is a tool from God and an opportunity for each of us to grow exponentially in community as we rub off on one another, as we care for one another, as you will see throughout this letter known as Philemon. Let's be real. So we get to annoy one another. Welcome to church. You get to annoy one another is what happens. As God gives us opportunities to extend grace and love for some who are harder to do so with. So your attendance does not save you, but God absolutely uses it to sanctify you. And that's why we want to encourage you, if you can, on Sunday, be here, be a part of what God is doing, learn the same things, engage, get to know one another, because that is an opportunity for sanctification. Being together weekly corporately is one of the biggest gifts we have as believers to enjoy a unified goal of worshiping and lifting up, magnifying, exalting our great God together. But let's be honest, it isn't as much a priority sometimes. See, if you're here, you already feel justified because I'm coming down on those who aren't here, and you're here. Good job. But see, we don't build our week around the corporate worship of our triune God. We build our week around work or school. Just me? Liars. Which for most of us is an obligation to be at. It's something that we have to do. And then the weekend becomes the time we can vacate the responsibility of the week. Now, even as I say that, my assumption is some of you might be thinking, yeah, Tim, but you work on Sundays, so you have to prioritize it. That's absolutely true. But I had two months off from having responsibilities within the church leadership, and I realized a few things about myself. Here's one. I really, really, really enjoy God's Word. I just really enjoy this book. I really love that while I was gone, I got to attend here on Sundays, and I heard people faithfully and creatively and honestly teach the Word of God. I came to multiple Sundays here. I listened to my friends who teach at this church open the Bible and proclaim the kingdom of God boldly. I also came on Sundays and I served in children's ministry. And man, I'll tell you what, they work hard to love on our kids, to point people towards, to point these children towards Jesus. And people over there would proclaim the kingdom of God and preach the gospel and would watch children while doing that so we could be in here and proclaim the kingdom of God and preach the gospel boldly and honestly. I also attended a local church of a close friend who pastors at that church, and I listened to him and his preparation of God's word be taught to his community and to me as I worshiped with them. I look forward to Sunday and corporate gatherings because something, it be, it, because as I look at some Sundays, it became something that I could do in a new way because I wasn't having to prepare every week for a message. I wasn't the guy leading and teaching. Because all, like all of us, I'm a sheep. Are you a sheep? 
There you go. I'm glad there's participation. I'm glad you guys didn't lose that. And as sheep, we ought to listen to the good shepherd's voice. And it only sounds like me when I'm reading from this. So Paul writes to Philemon, and he points out some others that he knows will also read and hear and benefit from this letter that he's writing. Verse 2, he says, also to Aphia, our sister, and Acropus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Aphia, our sister, most commentators believe that this is Philemon's wife. And Archippus, a fellow soldier, uh, similar to the designation that Paul uses for Philemon, a co-laborer, a fellow soldier, a fellow worker, probably means that Philemon and Archippus are pastors and or teachers in this home church which resides in Philemon's home. Why is this important? Because out of all the letters that are written in the Bible, out of all the letters that are written by Paul in the New Testament, this apostle who was trying to destroy Christianity and then fell in love with Jesus because he met him alive after he died, He writes this letter to Philemon, and it is the most private letter that Paul writes that ends up in Scripture. In other letters, he addresses certain heresies that are happening within the church of the city. He has spoken and given encouragement. He gives theology lessons. He has corrected corrected behaviors and celebrated God's grace in people's lives. But this letter, this is a personal matter regarding a mutual connection that both Paul and Philemon possess. And instead of using Paul's clout, to get what he wants, he writes to Philemon with a request filtered through the sanctifying work of God in believers. So not only is Paul speaking to another believer, but another shepherd, another pastor in the church of the living God, who ought to have the same spirit. He ought to have the same like-mindedness. He ought to have the same want for God's will to be done. Um, This message is a lot of real talk, because for two months I didn't get to do this. Um, Much of my ministry has been passed, in the past, has been connections with other pastors, especially in the Bay Area. When I was primarily an evangelist, a speaker, I would travel from church to church, I would share pastors' pulpits, I would do trainings for church communities on how to uh, share your faith, and I count many pastors to this day as my closest friends. But I want to be real about some things because I think it might be similar to what maybe we're all experiencing, just maybe not with pastors. Since the pandemic began, views on COVID, politics, what is emphasized most, and what is disregarded has made it difficult to keep all of the relationships we had prior to COVID the same. Is this just me? Okay, I can't see your lips, but I see some. Okay, thank you. Raise it. Testify. Mike, thank you. And it's been difficult. We believe in the same God. We have the same Holy Spirit, and yet that doesn't necessarily mean we agree on everything. And while it's okay not to agree on everything, I want to be honest that sometimes when pastors see things differently, it's really difficult to be as close to another pastor as maybe we were prior to that disagreement. That's a reality. And if that's true of pastors, my guess is that's true of you and your friends in this church and in other churches and maybe outside of the church as well. The most important agreement between pastors, but most importantly between believers, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing is more important than to agree on the gospel. That God came to save sinners like you and I, 
Not based on our political affiliations, our sexual orientations, or even our moral record, but through his incomparable riches of mercy, he shows off when he turns dead people into living trophies of grace that are now commissioned to proclaim the kingdom of God. Can someone testify? And as long as we major in the gospel, as long as we make it about Jesus, God making dead people alive through Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection being enough to justify us then we're not only friends, we're family. That's true of other pastors. That's true of other believers in this church and outside of this church. That's true of Paul and Philemon as they will discuss a somewhat difficult situation regarding Philemon and his bondservant. But we'll talk more about that next week. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. This is a very affectionate greeting to Philemon, to his wife, also to Archippus, who was probably another pastor, and those who meet in Philemon's home as the church of the living God, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ. Verse 4 and 5, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul is pointing out Philemon's reputation, that he is a man of honor, one that has love for God's people, and his faith is so tangible enough that other people speak about it. Church, I want to be known for my love for God's people and for a faith that is seen. But I think if our motivation is so that our reputation can be talked about, to be spoken highly of, to have street cred, then we've missed what this really means. Our motivation for our obedience to the Lord should always have more to do with our love for God than it does for our love for this world. Here's what I mean by that, because the term for the world can be thrown around in a lot of different ways. People will say, I'm not of this world, for God so loved the world. But what I mean when I say world, this is what I mean, the world, the people around you, the society, the faceless majority of popular opinion cannot be your target audience when it comes to your obedience to God. That will always burn. That will always be found out. You might be able to fool people, but you'll never be able to fool God. And God deserves our devotion and our worship and our willingness to make everything about and for Him. Here's why I bring that up, because as someone who is a speaker who would speak in a bunch of different places, people, as I would make much of Jesus, people would make much of me. And I liked it. And that's one of the reasons that I became a pastor in a church, because I wanted to serve God and not just have people think that I was a good talker. I wanted people to actually fall in love with Jesus and be discipled and walk in relationship with him. And guess what? Being a pastor is real ministry compared to being a speaker. Because I could blow in, blow up, blow out. But now, I get to share this message, and then I got to talk to you after service. (laughs) And we as a church this church, we are not about moral modification. Here's what moral modification means. We think that if we can get you to act right, then we've done our duty. That's actually what we as parents do often as well. If we can get you to act right, then we've done our duty. But then just as a quote we're about to read will point out, we think we can use the Bible to just make people think differently. But what I'm going to contend for is that really we need to help people remember whose they are in Christ, rather than attempt to just change how someone believes or thinks. 
Mike quoted this quote last week from Michael Lawrence, and I want to read that quote to you. He used an excerpt. I'm going to use a little bit more of it. Here's what it says. The temptation is to treat the person as the sum of either his thinking or his behavior. We then diagnose his problem as either wrong thinking or wrong behavior. For the cure, we turn to the Bible as an answer book to show them how to think rightly or act rightly. The result is proof texting. Blah. It's a proof texting approach to both diagnosis and prescription. Diagnosis. Wow, I can't speak. And generally results in a sort of Christianized version of behavioral or cognitive therapy. The basic counsel here is you simply need to learn by the power of the Spirit to think or act differently. But is that what biblical theology of the human being and the human problem leads us to? Absolutely not. A biblical anthropology begins with humans created in the image of God in order to worship God by reflecting back to Him His glory through their lives. If you're caught up in certain words, don't. The end's going to make it all make sense. Therefore, we are not finally defined by either our behavior or our thoughts. Rather, we are defined by who we worship. We are fundamentally worshipers, and our identity is defined by what or who we are reflecting. That image was distorted. It was marred in the fall, Genesis 3, so that now we freely and habitually worship the creature rather than the creator. And our favorite creature to worship is ourselves. Michael Lawrence said it, not me. Wait, so did Paul. No, I've also said that. So our problem is not fundamentally behavioral, though it will show itself in our behavior. Our problem is not fundamentally mental, though it will show up in our thinking. Our problem is fundamentally religious. Our problem is idolatry, disordered worship. Our problem is that we don't experience enough or know enough. Our problem is, as John Calvin the theologian put it, our hearts are idol factories. And we want to worship what we can control rather than bow down, bow a knee to what can own us. So here's what I want to point out. Paul saw Philemon not as one who was attempting to impress creation, but he saw Philemon as someone who was devoted to his creator. And so Paul is giving credit where credit is due. He thanks God for this man and the news about him that he hears. At first read, I kind of just assumed, as you read this, it kind of sounds like Philemon is just being buttered up by Paul. It's kind of this encouragement, rebuke, encouragement sandwich. Has anyone ever done this? Have I done this to you? It happens. And because, as we will study next week, there is this really big ask that, Philemon, that Paul's going to ask Philemon. It's culturally unorthodox for this to be asked, and it's very costly, but I don't think Paul is buttering them up. Here's why. Verse 6. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. I'm going to read that again. What a powerful statement. I pray that your partnership in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of everything good, every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Deepening your understanding, here's what I believe this implies, experience. Not that you would just know how to say something in Greek, which is fine, but because you are personally walking with God, you are experiencing His grace through the effects of Him in your very life. In the church at large today, the Big C Church, if you want to call it that, there seems to be this battle between those who emphasize knowledge and those who emphasize experience. And if you start thinking about other people that do that, start thinking about yourself. Which one do you do? 
The knowledge crowd are the ones who want to geek out in every Easter egg they see in Scripture. They want to crack codes. They want to judge people's lack of care for context when they misinterpret Scripture. Those are a few of the extreme bad examples of what may fall into the knowledge crowd. Then there's the experience crowd. The stereotype is that they just care about feelings. They just care about how something gave them the feels. They don't care what the Word says. They care how the Word makes them feel closer to God. Both of these examples are extremes. Both of them are caricatures of what, for some reason, has become this battle in the church. And the funny thing that both sides do is how they identify with the other side. They say things like, well, it's not like feelings don't really matter, or I'm a Bible person, but… But let's get away from these two extremes. Let's look at what Paul said again in his hope for Philemon. I pray that your partnership in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Those who are biblically knowledgeable are experiential in their following of Jesus. God doesn't call us all to be seminary professors, and I know some seminary professors that love Jesus and walk with Him. But there is this caricature that someone who can just give information isn't walking with Jesus. And to biblically be knowledgeable of the King of kings and Lord of lords, it means we spend time with Him. That your theology applied and put into practice matters more than your theology by itself or your willingness to apply without real understanding of who God is. Laura, our uh, creative director, I was like, what's her position? I forgot. Laura and I were on the phone the other day talking about this series, and the theme that we have for this series that we'll talk more and more about each week is we're calling it Keeping It Real. That's what we're calling the series, and it came up. And as we were talking, what came up in our conversation is that as we talked about having a relationship with Jesus, it kind of means you have inside jokes with Jesus. Does that make any sense to any of you? Let me explain. Here's what I mean. When I pray, when I cry out, when I sing praises, when I talk about Jesus or I talk to Jesus, none of it is from secondhand information. It is knowledge that has been experienced. I know what he's like because I know him from what he said about himself, but I've also spent time with him, praying to him, even praying back his own word back to him. He has walked with me. He has loved me. He has rebuked me. He has listened to me as I have cried out. And when you have that much time with someone, you have shared experience. And isn't that really all inside jokes are? I don't want to talk about God like He's not in the room or like He's in some far-off land. If the Bible is true, God the Holy Spirit resides in me, convicting me, comforting me, leading me towards holiness, towards obedience, towards love for Him and love for His people. You need to have inside jokes with Jesus. Or really, we will all believe that the only way to worship God is to show up to church in a tie. There's nothing wrong with showing up in church with a tie, and thankfully no one's wearing a tie today because everyone would be like, he's talking about Him. Nope. There's nothing wrong with wearing a tie. There's nothing wrong with getting dressed up for church in, in your Sunday garb. But to believe that we must be formal in our relationship with God and that He can't hear us unless we clean ourselves up goes against the very truth of the gospel that we proclaim. See, God will take us as we are, but He loves us far too much to leave us there. 
and we, but we cannot misrepresent Christ and say things that God didn't say, or probably even more consistent in today's culture, we misquote or speak for God out of a context from what was being implied. So we, we take it completely out of context. Let's eat grandma. If I don't put a comma there, that's super weird, right? No, you guys didn't pick that up? I should have written it down. Let's eat grandma. Never mind. <laughs> Luke 4. Okay. Get back into the sermon. Luke 4. <laughs> I was talking to me. Luke 4, verse 9. Satan is trying to tempt Jesus. We know this story. We know Jesus is about to begin his ministry, and he goes into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and the gospel says, and he was hungry. Duh. Okay. And then it says, the devil, verse 9, led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, the enemy said, throw yourself down from here. And then he quotes a psalm. He says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Real quick, Satan just quoted the word to the word. That's amazing. Jesus is like, yeah, I I know it's about me. I wrote it. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Satan attempted to misrepresent and misquote God by taking away the context of Psalm 91 from God's protection for his people to instead attempt to use the passage to incite Jesus to use God's power for a foolish display of personal gain. How many times... Is this how people attempt to bend Scripture to say what they would like? Just look at Psalm 91. Just We'll take a little bit more than what the enemy said. Verse 9, if you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. God provides protection for what is most important, our spiritual soul, rather than our earthly body. And that is what Psalm speaks to. Not the harm would never come upon someone who says, God is my refuge, but that God will meet you there. God saves our souls in Christ, that he is truly our refuge and our protector, not a spiritual sugar daddy that gives us what we want in the moment. Verse 7. Your love has given me great joy, Paul says, and encouragement, because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. This letter, especially the beginning, these seven verses are pretty optimistic, pretty encouraging, and in a lot of ways reflect how I feel coming back from two months away from my responsibilities, coming back to a congregation that, in my opinion, is thriving. I've heard story after story of people getting connected in community. People grabbing coffee or a meal or doing a Bible study with people that prior to the summer they had never really gotten to know. Maybe you sat in the same room together, but you never met one another. I've heard of life change. I've heard of gospel sharing, serving our neighbors, learning new things about God. I am over the moon. Generation Z, that means I'm excited, okay? That's what over the moon means. About the work of God in the people of God at COV. So coming back for for me is really exciting because it wasn't like, oh man, I need to get back to the grind. But I got to be a part of what God is doing here where he's strengthening faith in individuals and families. 
I'm seeing the hearts of people be refreshed in the work of the Spirit through the applying of God's Word. So we as a community have been making much of Jesus because we believe that if we lift up Jesus above all else, God will draw people to Himself. We also have been about applying God's Word, that we don't just read it and then put it in the backseat of our car, but we read it, we underline it, we study it, we talk about it, and we do what we believe God's telling us to do. Because we think that obedience for the right reasons grows us to look more like Jesus. And what's better than growing to look more like Jesus? Come on. And we want to emphasize the gospel, the good news of grace. We want to make sure that all of our ministries, our gatherings, our purpose is all centered around this news that dead people can be made alive, that resurrection is possible, that sin does not get to win because Jesus reigns and he is alive and we are with him. Amen? Oh, good. This is so much better than speaking to a camera. Because Keith says amen, but that's not enough. I love you, Keith, but I need more. So, ten things as I close, which means we've got an hour left. No, I'm just kidding. Ten things I learned on sabbatical. I love lists, okay? So, we're doing a list. Number one, I can waste a lot of time doing nothing that has eternal value. All right, I'm not going to go into all the things I did during my sabbatical, but I did a lot of nothing, and it was glorious, church. It was so good. Number two, I really enjoy not running from scheduled meeting to scheduled meeting all day. It's kind of my fault because I scheduled the meetings, but good Lord, I would run from meeting to meeting, and I would even, I would be like, wait, who am I meeting with? Wait, wait, what's your name again? No, it wasn't that bad, but like it was just too many meetings all at once, and having a complete break from that, it took a few days to get used to it, but man, it was glorious. So I'm not saying I'm not doing meetings, I'm just going to do a lot less. Number three, Resting takes a lot of effort. Oh, good Lord, it does. Resting takes a lot of effort, especially for me, because when my sabbatical started, I was like, so what am I supposed to do? And I had no idea what to do. I was the UPS guy from TV. I was all over the place. And then over time, I started to realize how necessary it was that I rest. Number four, I didn't miss traveling as much as I thought. We went to L.A., and that was for a funeral, and that was hard. And we went to Florida, and that was gross. Um, And uh, there's no better way to say it. If you're from Florida, I'm glad you're here. Amen. But I didn't miss traveling as much as I thought. We didn't travel for a very long time, and then we went and traveled a few places, and I was like, ah, man, we are blessed in the Bay Area. Number five, rest is necessary for productivity. We all know this. I heard Daniel's sermon a while back on on the Sabbath. I know rest is necessary, but now I know rest is necessary because I've experienced it. Number six, time to think is more important than running 100 miles an hour. Engineers, let me say this again. Time to think is more important than running 100 miles an hour. I had time to think. I had time to wrestle with stuff. One of the things, and, and I told the staff that part of my sermon today was going to be confessing some things that, as I reflected, I know I did wrong. And we love discipleship here. We love connecting with one another and getting in front of one another and spending time in God's Word. But one of the things that I realized was a lot of the things that we had taught as a church leadership, not all of it was replicatable. It was like, hey, as long as you know all of the book of John, then it's easy to teach this. But we need to start to help people understand what's it like to just go 
a verse at a time, a, a passage at a time, a chapter at a time, a book of the Bible at a time, and, and give people in the church tools to disciple others, and even give tools to people that are being invested in on how to be the best student they can be. Number seven, I love this church, which, by the way, is the people, not the steeple. The building's okay. I like that it's painted, but I love this church of people. COV, COV, you did a really good job of allowing this time while I was gone to be restful for me. And man, did I need that, so thank you. Number eight, I don't regret not doing more things, but if I ever get a sabbatical again, which Mike's like, nope, um, you're not the boss of me, I think I may have more of a plan for my time at my next sabbatical. I really enjoyed not doing a lot, but I think, like, I started watching YouTube videos on traveling Route 66, and I'm like, yes, I want to go do that. So there's little things like that that I might do. Number nine, in order to be the best pastor for the people of COV that I can be, time to think, rest, and recover will be vital to my leading in this community. This week, I, I, I came back to work Sunday, and I, all I did was some announcements. I didn't preach or anything, but I came back to work. And then Monday, we started VBS. And VBS was awesome. Amen, parents who brought their kids? It was great. But that was a lot of work for those who served. Amen, those who served? Woo-wee! Did that all week, you know, some sermon stuff, some staff meeting, elder meeting, teaching team meeting, did some other stuff, and then did a rehearsal for a wedding on Friday, and then did the wedding yesterday, and I'm like, I can't wait until it's 11 today. No, that's not true. I'm, I'm enjoying this in the moment. But man, it is important that I have time to think and rest and recover. And so thank you again so much for giving me that time away. Number 10, the gospel is enough for me to find my identity in, not my job, my responsibilities or actions, but my defining feature is that I'm saved, sealed, and identified by Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and resurrection from the dead. But I would have said that prior to this break because that is intellectually what I know to be true, but getting away from preaching, from decision-making, from being over-involved in a bunch of different details pointed out, not that I don't like or love my job, I do, but it doesn't need to define who I am because Jesus already does that. Before my sabbatical, I knew this. I knew I was defined by Christ, but after my sabbatical, I know and have experienced what it's like to be defined by Christ and not what I do. And you and I, we have the opportunity through the gospel of grace to not behave better or think differently, but through the gospel, our affections are stirred for God and his people because we don't worship ourselves in the gospel. We worship he who did for us what we could not do for ourselves in Jesus Christ. So through knowing, loving, and sharing him, we experience the beauty of this grace that is offered to you and me and to those in our sphere of influence. So we're going to pray. Worship team, I'm going to invite you up. And let's pray with the intent of allowing God to spark something in us that requires faith to trust Him at His Word and to put into practice His Word throughout the week. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me?